In software engineering, telemetry is the data that is collected about your applications. Unlike logging, which is used in the development of apps to pinpoint errors and code flows, telemetry data includes all operational data including logs, metrics, events, traces, usage, and other analytical data. Companies usually visualize this information to troubleshoot problems and understand problems and opportunities in how their applications are used. The company New Relic is a modern observability platform built to optimize and observe your software stack in one place. New Relic includes a telemetry data platform that acts as a single source of truth for telemetry data. Built on top of that are tools for full-stack observability to visualize and troubleshoot your data in milliseconds. In this episode, we talk with Zain Asghar and Ishan Mukherjee. They are the co-founders of Pixie Labs, which was acquired by New Relic. Pixie Labs developed technology to help observability in Kubernetes environments. We had a great conversation about Kubernetes observability and what the acquisition means for New Relic as well as Pixie. A few announcements before we get started. One, if you like Clubhouse, subscribe to the Club for Software Daily on Clubhouse. It's just Software Daily, and we'll be doing some interesting Clubhouse sessions within the next few weeks. Uh, And two, if you are looking for a job, we are hiring a variety of roles. We're looking for a social media manager, we're looking for a graphic designer, and we're looking for writers. If you are interested in contributing content to Software Engineering Daily, or even if you're a podcaster and you're curious about how to get involved, we are looking for people with interesting backgrounds who can contribute to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, Again, mostly we're looking for social media help and design help, but if you're a writer or a podcaster, we'd also love to hear from you. You can send me an email with your resume, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. That's jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Guys, welcome to the show. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having us here. So you both have worked on Kubernetes monitoring. You worked on Pixie Labs before it was acquired by New Relic. And I'd like to start off by just talking about monitoring Kubernetes and get an understanding of why it's different than other environments. Why did new tooling need to get built to monitor Kubernetes specifically? Cool. Yeah, I can take a quick pass on that question. So, I mean, part of the challenge with monitoring Kubernetes environments or actually any really any distributed system is that there are usually a large number of services written in lots of different languages. And, you know, in, in addition to that, it's usually built the applications that run on top of it are usually built by many, many different teams of different practices. So what you typically run into is when you're trying to debug a problem that spans many different services, it's usually difficult to get like a consistent viewpoint on them, right? Like the monitoring system is running, but it's not giving you the baseline level of information because not everyone has added instrumentation. Uh, not everyone's been instrumenting things in the exact same way. And you know the good news around this is that there's lots of new open standards like open telemetry and you know open monitoring agents are coming out that make this process easier. Part of what we wanted to do with Pixie was actually make it easy to get base level insights around the entire system. And you know we started working with this kernel technology called uh, eBPF, which actually allows us to go and automatically instrument all the code in the background without actually having to go and change any code. And this means that, you know, once you get, you know, Pixie deployed, you can actually get access to all the information regardless of what language it was written in, 
or if you know, the developers had added instrumentation ahead of time. We've done a show about eBPF, but maybe you could talk about it in a little more detail and explain what it enables. Cool. Yeah. So, you know, eBPF is a, a technology, it stands for like the Enhanced Berkeley Packet Filter. It was originally developed as a way to write, you know, IP filtering rules and, and Linux, right? And the goal over here was to make programmable, a programmable packet filter. But in the process of creating eBPF, you know, the authors of, this, of the software actually created a small sandbox virtual machine where you can basically run a restricted form of C code and the Linux kernel can guarantee that that C code can safely execute. Over time, the sandbox virtual machine uh, got extended to be able to access other things within the Linux kernel. And part of what we can do is you know, take a look at what system calls are being made, what's being sent over the system calls, and we can even go and use eBPF to go patch applications to be able to do things like dynamic logging. And you know, fundamentally, this, this technology that started off as a packet filter now has you know well outgrown its name and it's, it's used for all sorts of monitoring and, and other tasks uh, that require running in a sandbox environment. Right. Uh, on that point, one thing that for us, eBPF was a means to an end, right? When we were looking at just a monitoring space and, we, and our North Star was how can we kind of make invisible a lot of the manual instrumentation that we were we were doing when trying to collect traces specifically, but also like metrics and logs. And then when we came across eBPF, it was pretty early. To Zen's point, it was being used in, secu- in the CNI side on, for security use cases. Our kind of idea was, hey, this seems like a really interesting approach to for us to potentially collect a lot of the inter-service communications without doing instrumentation, right? So eBPF in its own is like a truly, truly transformative uh, piece. And for us, it was trying to get to like that that kind of developer experience point, which is like, hey, we could use this to essentially get data in seconds. What were some of the early engineering problems that you had to solve in building Pixie and trying to build useful monitoring tools? So, you know, part of the goal of Pixie, I think from the very early days, is that we wanted to provide a, a very seamless developer experience, right? We wanted to get to a point where Pixie gets installed and you get access to a lot of data out of the box without having to to go and modify your source code, without having to do a lot of configuration. So a lot of our early challenges were we're actually just trying to figure out how to make this work. And you know, as Sean just mentioned a little bit earlier, eBPF was kind of a means means to an end for us, right? We wanted a way to do easy instrumentation. There's been you know other technologies in the past that people have used to do instrumentation like binary modification and and you know things like dtrace. But none of those things were particularly easy for us to deploy at scale. eBPF made made this a lot easier. So that was one of the one of the challenges. The other challenge we had was we were able to collect so much data, and actually at relatively low overhead, we had to engineer an entire system to be able to handle this and not introduce a ton of overhead into the system. And this ultimately led to the way Pixie is designed today, where we basically run everything, what we call the edge, where everything actually runs on the node that it's collected. We try to figure out what's actually interesting to send upstream so that we don't you know, saturate the network with all the data that we're collecting. And on top of that, we needed to make this data easy to understand. So we actually you know, started looking at building you know, machine learning stuff to make it easier to find interesting, uh, interesting pieces of data that we could actually uh, send upstream to the user. 
Right. Just to kind of build on that, on as you were getting deployed initially, Jeffrey, like to Zen's point, like the architecture is tr- in some way uh, truly dis- uh, distributed, right? So you can start installing it in a five node Kubernetes cluster. Then what we started to see is that five nodes became 50 nodes. And now we run in kind of thousand plus node clusters and running that entirely in the customer's kind of environment where with the split architecture, the data plane lives inside of the environment and our control planes in the cloud. That was something that we were pretty early on kind of thinking about. So just the first kind of year, year and a half, two years was just, it was probably unglamorous, but just figuring out that install and then post-install scaling piece was like huge. I guess one more thing to add to that. Conventionally, the wisdom is to move everything off of customer environments and into into a SaaS-based, you know, cloud platform, right? And to some degree, our system is similar where, you know, as Sean mentioned, we have a control plane that's running in the cloud, and then we have a data plane that, that runs in the customer environment. But one of the nice things is since we run on Kubernetes, uh, we were able to use the fact that Kubernetes is relatively standardized to make it easier for us to actually build a pretty substantial deployment on the customer side without having to go through the pains of, you know, all, all the installation and management pains that you typically have uh, when people just have a whole bunch of Linux machines. You mentioned using machine learning to try to find some of the more insightful outputs that you could generate through all this monitoring data. Tell me a little bit more about the machine learning side of things. Cool. Yeah. So actually, we'll be having a blog post on this in, in Google's TensorFlow blog probably next week, but... There, there are actually a few different things we look at, and we're continuously adding new things. There's relatively simple things that we do, like you know, figuring out like URL clustering and SQL query clustering, so we can actually go and group a whole bunch of related queries together and allow you to facet them by like a different user type and also latencies, like try to understand if like certain keys are a lot slower. So those are like the relatively simple things. We also do things like do schema detection. Right, so if you have like an API call that's being made, we'll basically try to go figure out what the schemas of the API calls are. And one of the things we're using this for is to, to enable better compression of the data, but also allow users to detect uh, schema changes. And then there, there are much more you know, complex things that we're starting to look at, which is actually trying to connect different pieces of information to like different traces together based on, on fields and the messages. So ultimately, right, we're trying to connect here, here are a set of messages. Here's how they're related. Here's how we see them impacting the latency, and you know, allow you to figure out and take a look at like example traces, so we don't have to collect every single HTTP request with with its full detail and send it up to the user. So, as a Kubernetes operator, what do I want out of a monitoring platform? Like, do I want a system that's just going to alert me when something is running out of memory or when I have an outage or are there, you know, more innocent kinds of alerts and detections that I'm looking for? Tell me a little bit more about the kinds of uh, features that I want from a monitoring platform. Sure. So I I think in general, you know, in a monitoring system, you definitely want it to to send you alerts and and find problems. One of the interesting things is that at Pixie, we actually don't don't send alerts, nor do we actually store data for, for long periods of time. We were actually built a lot more like a live debugging system. We really see ourselves as a way to enable developers 
to, to actually build and operate applications and, and both, you know, production and also any kind of debug environment that they have. So, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say you're running into a performance problem and you've got an alert from a system. You're trying to figure out where the performance problem is. You can very quickly go into Pixie, look at the pod, and then, you know, we have a feature called continuous profiling where we're just always showing you where is CPU time being spent in your in your application. So once you go to that, you navigate to the pod level view, you take a look at this profile, and you can immediately see which functions in your code are slow. So part of what we're actually trying to do is move away from monitoring as a very passive con concept to being able to use this data to actually help with the operation and, and debugging of your application. And to add to that, uh, one other point is that, you know, we have this concept of a, of a pixel script, which basically is, is a Python-like uh, script that's based on pandas that allows you to work with the data in Pixie. And we have a whole repository of scripts that allow you to like debug different use cases. So if you're trying to figure out why you're running into a certain type of Redis problem, you can run one of these scripts and then actually get a, get some pre-canned things. And as you learn more and more about your system, you can actually go and, and codify, codify that knowledge. So, you know, just uh, to step back, ultimately we, we think that, you know, it's not just about monitoring and getting alerting, but we want to basically allow a seamless debug and development experience. Right. To kind of build on that, the types of engineers who end up kind of using Pixie and, and hopefully loving Pixie, Jeffrey, is beyond just kind of platform infra engineers or maybe ops engineers. And the core idea is like, how do we expose as much data as possible in an API where hopefully all or most engineers kind of get access to this data in a programmatic way. So we see a lot of actual application engineers, whether they are on kind of API teams or other kind of backend teams using our data, writing scripts to run kind of use cases like, hey, here's my auto-scaling logic or some sort of kind of heuristic-based kind of flags. And it's kind of beyond just kind of uh, ops and, and, and traditional infra. So Pixie is kind of like a data system with an API, which essentially allows a ton of different kind of engineering personas to get access to this information. And they're they're writing kind of distributed top-like utilities. So it is kind of an, uh, a new, new paradigm. And uh, the last point is, we do unify kind of metrics, traces, spans, or, or logs and events in a unified kind of uh, data structure. And being able to kind of access that, we've seen kind of engineers who are not married too much to like the metrics, traces, logs, kind of pillars of observability. Like once they get all of the data in like one clean format, uh, the types of things that people are doing are super fun and interesting. Like somebody wrote a script to flag internal services, calling external services with kind of email information. So as Zen was saying, the Pixie is kind of this kind of access, programmatic access to this firehose data, where you can kind of essentially run these kind of decision jobs or pipeline jobs. And then for longer term retention and alerting kind of traditional monitoring, you can pipe that to your Elastic or Grafana stack or, or any kind of SaaS monitoring stack. Tell me a little bit more about how you see the typical stack of monitoring tools developing for a, a platform operator. So what would they use in tandem with Pixie Labs and what would be the, I guess, the data pipeline? What would be the, the different workflows involved in, in such a monitoring stack? Right, I can take that. So traditionally, obviously it depends on the, the type of uh, engineering team and also their scale. 
let's just say for kind of medium to kind of large kind of organization, let's just say you have a five to 10 plus engineering kind of core platform team who are responsible for your kind of dev kind of pre-production and production platforms. And then you have a set of kind of engineering teams. In that, what we usually see is from an instrumentation side kind of platform engineers advocating for and standardizing on open source standards, whether that's Prometheus from Metrics, kind of Jaeger, Zipkin, and similar projects for traces, and then using Fluentd, Fluentbit for like logs. So we see most of the collection and related activities happening in the customer's environment being increasingly, if not all, open source. Once you're collecting that data, then there's a decision point. Do you build out your, entire, your own data storage and compute stack? So we see a lot for logs, for example, like kind of teams setting up kind of elk-based systems. And, and on top of that, writing, using Grafana uh, for alerting, right? So I think a lot of infrared teams call it the PAG stack, like Prometheus Alert Manager Grafana. And with Elk for uh, for kind of unstructured data, so so that's one. The other is obviously for kind of teams who want to look look for managed solutions. They they use tools like Datadog and Neuralic and 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 Splunk and what have you. So a stack. We think most engineering teams like on the instrumentation side are standardizing on open source. Most platform infra teams, because they have that bend, they have some sort of open source stack. Then there's a decision. A lot of engineering teams kind of have these kind of SaaS observability platforms where increasingly all of this telemetry is going into like one place. As far as the Kubernetes stack itself, you've had to integrate with the various container platforms like EKS and GKE, and I imagine Fargate and the uh, the other container instance systems. What are you seeing in terms of container platform usage? Like, how are people deploying their containers these days? And what does the, what is the contour of their uh, infrastructure deployments look like? Yeah, I, yeah, I can take that. So, I think kind of fun kind of anecdote is as we were talking about eBPF and Zen and I were thinking of of Pixie, we got really infatuated with this idea of giving a developer experience where you get access to all data that you want without doing any work because all of us are are somewhat lazy. And at that point, we had to make a bunch of uh, decision points and Kubernetes was one. So we chose kind of Kubernetes because that kind of gave us this platform substrate substrate where we could deliver this experience. At that time, it was still relatively early days. I would say like year three, year four of of the Kubernetes adoption journey. Kind of fast forward now, like it's just no question that it is kind of generally agreed as the kind of the, the consensus standard way to to deploy kind of containerized applications. So whether that's on our open source stuff or kind of generally, I think it's it's at a point where 50 to 60% plus kind of customers that we work with have some sort of Kubernetes in production, which is like, quite quite amazing about like how how that's going to come together and in terms of self managed versus using kind of cloud managed distributions initially when we started pixie we used to see a lot of self managed uh, clusters actually because of the architectures and walk through we were kind of agnostic to 
what kind of Kubernetes it was because Pixie is just kind of Kubernetes native. So whether that's a self-managed cluster or EKS or AKS, we didn't really matter. So so we saw a lot of early developer kind of engagement from folks running self-managed clusters in their own data centers or maybe in their kind of EC2 clusters, right? So we used to see a lot of that. But right now, like all the kind of Kubernetes uh, versions, GKE, EKS, AKS, are really, really really great products to be very honest and we see more of that getting adopted uh, across customer bases as an example so a niche for the pixie project a cohort of developers that really resonated with what we were doing were folks working on content kind of streaming teams uh, so these are kind of large streaming applications that we we know and love and we use a lot so they had kind of containerized workloads already, which kind of ranged from their serving applications to recommendation systems to even their ad serving models. All of them, like fast over two and a half years, have kind of Kubernetes-based kind of production systems. And those production systems now are primarily kind of cloud-managed uh, Kubernetes environments. So, so that's kind of what we're seeing. But to kind of complete that, we definitely don't view Kubernetes as the only platform. It is an increasing part of like a portfolio of, of substrates. So most cus uh, customers in the mid to like kind of large sizes have their kind of let's say AWS, for example, you have your EC2 clusters, you have EKS clusters, you have a little bit of kind of a Lambda, some Fargate as well. So it is definitely a portfolio. Like it much, it's much more heterogeneous than, than what one would like to imagine. So yeah, that's kind of where we see it. And how have you seen the evolution of functions as a service? I I realize this is not, uh, this is not exactly closely connected to, to what you're doing, but... I imagine you work with a lot of customers who have deployments where they're doing some work with their Kubernetes clusters and some with their functions as a service environments. So I'd, I'd love to know how that fits into the, the typical deployments that you see. I can talk a little bit about the community and then I'm going to hand it over to Zan because it's kind of an interesting way where how Pixie is useful. Just as in the candid story, like when we were thinking about designing Pixie, we were talking to like a ton of kind of developers and platform engineers in the community. We did come across a bunch of startups who were purely functions, which is like quite stunning and quite exciting. I think that continues to be the case to this day. But from our standpoint, and there might be a bias, obviously, like with the community that we engage with, we don't see kind of functions as a service being a major kind of wheelhouse type of workload as yet. It may, and we hope it, it does happen, but it's definitely not something that we come across a lot, Zen. Yeah, I think where we have mostly seen functions as a service is people using it for, you know, I don't really want to say like side tasks, but things that are like mostly stateless services, like do this translation, resize this image, or, or something that's like very self-contained and not really a core, necessarily a core part of the, the stateful business logic that people have. And as Sean mentioned, you know, we, we probably have a very biased set on this, right, based on the, the users we interact with. In terms of how we plan to support it, you know, in the current state, when you're running and, you know, when you have a function as a service, the infrastructure is completely abstracted from the user. 
It also means that our ability to, to run on that infrastructure is also completely abstracted. But we are actively working on trying to provide the same level of visibility for, for customers that are running things on like Firecracker. And it's mostly a, you know, an engineering challenge of trying to build out similar infrastructures in that space. I actually thought of one pretty interesting conversation Zen and I had. This is a leading kind of media company who have a legacy printing business. And to Zen's point, like they actually use functions to do these very self-contained tasks around like, okay, the CMS has outputted like the content with the framing and now you need to give tell the printing side of the house like print. That was a function. Uh, so I just kind of thought of that. Gotcha. So as the product evolved over the the course of the the few years that you that you worked on it before it got acquired, what were you hearing from people? Like, what was the product iteration process like as you sort of collided with the market? How did your customer conversations shape how the product evolved? Yeah, uh, I can think of quite fast side and Sean can add a lot more detail. Yeah. So we were we were ex- extremely iterative in our in our product development, which is actually pretty surprising for for most infrastructure components, right? Especially ones that's deployed on on someone else's machine, uh, someone else's like you know clusters. You know, from the very very early days, Pixie had an auto update feature and ability to to iterate iterate quickly. So based on like feedback, we'd find out like, oh, what kinds of applications are people running? What things are they interested in? We had very early on, you know, developed the ability to, to script things in Pixie. So the, the two ways we had of quickly iterating, the easiest one was we could create entire new views for people by creating a new script. And this was a way that, you know, we could show both like a completely new capability in the product, but also kind of show how you can use scripts to, to build out these workflows. And then the second thing was, you know, when we fundamentally needed to add a new way to capture data, like capture Redis data, be able to go put that in and then usually, you know, ship an update to somebody and all the daemon sets would eventually update automatically and they would get access to the capability. Right. And that's a really, like, great point point there. Just to kind of share a little bit of context on that and also, like, build on that, there was a couple of decision points for us because initially, just like any kind of monitoring, any SaaS product, we had these really fancy, complicated UIs that we mocked up, right? Uh, which would be the, the intuition and the normal part to go there, right? Like build an end-to-end SaaS application with really, really involved kind of user experiences. But we had this one decision point where, as Zen was sharing about the script, where, hey, should we go and build the end-to-end magical kind of UI experience or should we build a platform out in a way where it can run in production at scale? And we ended up deciding to do the latter because the core idea was we were getting this kind of traction from streaming uh, streaming engineering teams and their scale was just ginormous. We felt like if we can get deployed in production and actually deliver real, like, I guess, quote unquote value, which means our data is getting used to like do triage, troubleshooting, writing, powering their load balancer, that is just a better validation for the technology than uh, than kind of going, f- building out the full UI. So that helped us make the decision that Zen talked about, which is like, okay, let's just focus on this API and the scripting interface and, and also build out the install, upgrade, scaling pieces so that we can run in production at essentially consumers consumer scale. At that point, we had these difficult decisions where we we decided to 
work more with large scaling teams and less with kind of smaller earlier stage kind of startups because in a in a in an early stage teams we just did come across the scale is not wasn't the issue this the need was really like simple intuitive experience and yeah we decided to prioritize that lower than the scripting interface and the scaling pieces yeah i i, I guess just to add to that to, to build on that a little bit because you know we're getting access to all this data and that early early traction that Sean mentioned we kind of went down the path of essentially targeting power users uh, with Pixie, and that was a decision that we we made early on. And and you know, our, our goal eventually was to try to build more and more higher level interfaces over time. But our method of doing that from the early days was actually just powering everything using using scripts, because ultimately we wanted our users to to be able to build build all these things themselves. And you know, what this would lead to is like. In every you know major org we talked to, there would be a couple of people who would kind of like take on the thing of like, oh, let me learn the system and be able to write new workflows around it and share it with the rest of the team. How do you see the Kubernetes environment evolving in the next five years? Yeah, so I can I can try to take a quick pass at that. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is going to happen as as it does in, in most systems as they as they mature is that you know to some degree we'll see kubernetes more and more just disappear right from the developer workflow and and i actually think that's a that's a good thing and you know part of what's going to happen over here is as as kubernetes itself matures developers will start writing applications using other frameworks that'll manage all the deployments and setup and configuration and it'll they'll abstract themselves away from from the low level infrastructure to some degree, you know, you're, you're actually going to kind of see this entire like re-evolution of the system where people will go and, you know, effectively be like Heroku or App Engine or whatever, but running on top of on top of Kubernetes. Anything to add, Ishan? Yeah, no, I can't agree more. Like, it, it might be a little weird for for product builders like Zen and myself talking about. Kubernetes getting abstracted away, but we fundamentally agree. So, like our goal has always been as developers, like how fundamental rule has been like, oh, we're all lazy. Like, how do we save developer time? And and ultimately, we want to build a system where developers get access to the data that they need and not worry too much about, I guess, the platform primitives, as they say. So, like we do see this already. Like, do most dev teams and developers care about kubernetes that much not really it's it's already abstracted out because if it's not an api it is like a platform infra team right they ship their binaries in a container and like the world takes it away from there so that we definitely see that happening so in a lot of our kind of discussions we we spend more of our time kind of focusing on hey like what do you need a live debugger like how do we make our api better and less about kind of the deployment substrate. And on our side, we try to keep a pulse, try to make sure Pixie is deployable in as, as many kind of environments as possible. Uh, over time, hope uh, there might be a next thing and may, may, hopefully Pixie is installed deployable anywhere. Right? That's our goal. But yeah, I, can't, I agree with Sam. So if Kubernetes gets abstracted away, what are the backend developers doing? Yeah, so, you know, I, I don't know if... Um, 
backend developers necessarily means that you know they have to worry about every layer of infrastructure. So I can you know give some context for my my time at Google, right? It's no secret that Google runs this thing called Borg, which effectively is the predecessor for for Kubernetes. And you know when I used to build code at Google, actually in the beginning didn't care a lot about Borg. And then eventually when you start deploying things in production, I was like, how do I cargo cult? you know, enough scripts from other projects so that I can just get something to run on Borg, right? So as a developer, I never really cared to understand deeply how any of that stuff worked because it, it just did. But I can tell you like, you know, towards the, you know, towards the later years when I was at Google, we even had other systems that would be like, okay, you have this built out, specify what the container is and we'll just automatically manage, effectively manage the cargo culting for you so you don't have to do it. And you know that that's what I think is going to happen, right? Where people will stop having to write like thousands of lines of YAML files for most cases. I'm not saying that they're not going to have to do it for some special cases, like oh, we're running some you know fancy database and we need to really worry about how to manage the storage and communication and everything. But for most applications, it'll be a lot simpler. Right. Just to kind of add to that, like something that's interesting and curious for uh, Sparks Art Curiosity is like how much of that abstraction and experience is done by a customer's kind of platform infra developer experience team versus the cloud's kind of Kubernetes distribution, right? So like GKE as an example, they're just shipping so much like interesting stuff where like auto with auto scaling and now they're changing the pricing uh, as well. Like where it kind of points to a future where it speaks to kind of Zen's vision, right? Which is developers will increasingly like not really care and they might not spend the cycles to kind of get ramped themselves. Themselves. An interesting anecdote here is like we were talking to somebody and I was asking them like, hey, like is, are we talking about a prod or a pre-prod environment or is it a test environment? And they said, I don't know. <laughs> like they just work with their CI/CD system and it's it. The usual norm is that oh, the Google, the way Google does engineering is pretty futuristic. But we actually see that happening, like that kind of developer experience happening a lot more in kind of early stage and 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 kind of traditional kind of enterprise teams because because CI/CD and kind of getting that to be seamless and building like a really nice developer experience is important across all companies, and it's kind of getting to that point. Right. Just just to build on to Sean's point, one of the things that we do see is that most companies that use Kubernetes, they have another team that's basically dedicated to setting up all the infrastructure and making all the application deployments happen. So to some degree, the developer abstraction right now is happening through humans and preset processes. And as, as you know, as Sean was just alluding to, I think a lot of the stuff will actually move to the core platform over over time. How does the architecture for Pixie compare to traditional monitoring systems where you have an agent that you install on each of the nodes and the agent collects all the data and sends all the data to to centralized server and you can you know query the server and the server does all kinds of things like you know look look through the data for things that constitute alerts just tell me a little bit about how your architectural decisions of Pixie contrast with traditional monitoring systems. Yeah. So, you know, roughly, you know, I think there's kind of like maybe three different types of architecture paradigms that we should consider, right? So one of them is, is the one you just mentioned where there's an agent per node and you're basically shipping data off to a central centralized system for, for processing and analysis. 
and a lot of like infrastructure monitoring tools tools use this. There's another model which is actually much more common in APM use cases where you're actually trying to get deep code level insights, uh, which is where you actually have a library or something that you actually add to your binaries. So for every application that's running on your node, you actually have effectively an agent that's running, uh, relaying data to some centralized service. And most systems, you know, today use some combination of the two, right? One of them to collect the infrastructure data and the other one to collect the, uh, the application level data. And the third paradigm is what Pixie is, is currently using. Uh, and you know you can totally mix and match these in different ways, but uh, the way Pixie works is that we actually have one, effectively one agent, which we call the Pixie Edge module that runs on every node. And this collects both the infrastructure data and the application level data. And you know in addition to just collecting the data, we do most of the data processing and storage locally. And you know part of the advantage of doing that is you know, with Pixie, you get visibility to, to every HTTP request that has, you know, happened. And you can go back and be like, okay, let me know what the HTTP request was that caused this problem. If you have that level of details, you're basically running into issues just egressing the data out of every node, right? If you have like a gig per second of network traffic, you're probably not going to be able to egress that out to any centralized system. So what we very quickly have to do is take a look at the network request and determine, you know, is this a reasonable request for us to store? Like, is this a, is this a sample of something that might be happening that's weird? So, you know, we can store the time and the metrics for every request, but we can't feasibly store the data for everything and ship it over somewhere else. So what we typically do is that we store a bunch of data on the actual edge module. We then ship off some data that we think is interesting to another node that's running even within their cluster. And then ultimately the user can access the data from, you know, the hottest data, uh, and the most interesting data from our semi-central service, and if they really need to, can go access the raw data from every single uh, edge module. So what this overall leads to is just a lot more efficient of an architecture, where you know we we introduce relatively low overheads. Tell me about your process of debugging Pixie as you were building it. Like to me, it seems like a very difficult challenge to iron out bugs and problems in a core infrastructure tool like this. Just tell me about your workflows for doing that. Yeah. So I, I think there are two things and probably more than two things that make debugging challenging with Pixie, right? The, the first one is we're actually running on someone else's environment, which means getting access to data can be difficult. And I think the second one is that, you know, we have some stuff running in eBPF, which, you know, is not the easiest system to debug. So one of the things we thought about from the very early days of Pixie was just like, how do we actually add enough capability in the tool to be able to access our debug information and even generate more debug information? So one of the things is, for example, we have a mode in Pixie where even if everything is broken, we will still continue to somewhat function so that we can pull the debug information out without having to go dig through um, all the logs in Kubernetes, right? This allows you know, a, a user of ours to very quickly send us the information by just running our, our CLI command. So we spent a lot of time trying to make sure that there's at least enough stuff working that we can go access information. In addition, we have a whole bunch of debug hooks so that we can actually go, you know, when you're running our scripts, you can actually go and add a debug hook that'll dump out a bunch more information when it's running. Like, how did this thing get executed? What was the query plan? Where did we spend time in, you know, various steps, you know, steps of the query plan? 
and we capture all this information so that we can uh, easily debug the system. I guess another thing to add to that is one of the good things about architecting these type of systems, especially on Kubernetes, is that we're basically built to be resilient, right? And that was one of the the core premises is that we should be able to function even if things are crashing or going going out. And this is like a good good methodology when we were building a distributed system to, to make sure that you can function even if pieces are missing and just report that, you know, there's partial results available. So we're pretty careful about doing that. One thing that comes to mind that actually Zian and I haven't uh, talked about it even is that we had this kind of internal kind of development not start that we want to be able to use Pixie to debug Pixie, but it took us a while to get there, right? Like it was not from day zero. Like we we wanted to dog food while we were building out the platform. And I would say we started mid late to 2018, 2019. Maybe like late 2019, early 20, we got to that point, right, Zen? Like it took us a while. We were never happy with it. Like, hey, we should be able to dog food it. But we were also build, laying the bricks at the same time, like building out the platform. So, yeah. yeah. One of the challenges of, of dog fooding your own monitoring and debugging system is when your own system doesn't work, it makes it very challenging to debug your own system. You know, th- this actually came in, in two different forms, right? Like the first form was... You know, we weren't necessarily supporting all the protocols. Like, for example, Pixie used HTTP2 and gRPC. That was not the easiest protocol to build support for, so we didn't actually have support for it in the earliest version of Pixie. So we weren't able to look at our own traffic. Then there were a set of challenges where, you know, if, if Pixie was down, then we wouldn't be able to capture any data and we wouldn't be able to, to debug. Uh, but ultimately, you know, over time, we added enough protocol support and there's enough resiliency in the system now that we're usually able to get debug information out. And to Sean's point, it, it took us a fair amount of time to get there. Yeah. It was a goal of ours because, you know, we want to build a dock food and use our own system. To what extent is Pixie open source or, or what open source components do you use? Yeah, so two fronts over there. So what what part of Pixie is open source? It's basically the entire thing is open source. You know, we have a hosted version that's also completely free to use. But, you know, you can download Pixie, run your own version of, you know, what we call Pixie Cloud, and then deploy Pixie pointing to your own personal Pixie Cloud. So every, everything is, is open source and there's no tie-in to, to any commercial service to be able to use Pixie. We do offer a hosted version that makes it a lot easier for people to get started. But even that is, is completely free to use. In terms of leveraging open source, you know, I think as of most modern software we have probably hundreds of dependencies on, on open source, on other open source libraries and frameworks. Some of the core ones are, are things like, you know, we are heavy users of, of BCC, which is the, the BPF compiler uh, collection, I think is what it's called, which basically allows you to write code to, to interface with BPF. We also, our entire data system is built on top of Apache Arrow, uh, which is something, you know, I, I worked on a very, very long time ago when I was at Trifacta. So those are, I think, some of our two two big core dependencies, uh, and then of course we depend on Kubernetes and to, to run. We also do the, the V three and Vega. Yeah, I, I guess uh, to, to, to Sean's point over there is that you know our scripting language is, is based on on pandas, uh, even though we don't actually use pandas directly in our code base. We do actually do all our visualization using this library called Vega, which is effectively a way to to you know, declaratively specify visualizations. So not only in Pixie can you select one of the default visualizations, which will use Wago, but you can actually code your own visualizations uh, and add it to your, to your script. 
uh, and we leverage leverage Wega to do that, which again is is an extension. Well, I guess it's built on top of D three. You mentioned the use of Arrow. I remember doing a show about Arrow. I've done a, a few shows discussing it. My recollection is that's mostly used for like interoperability, like data interoperability, like being able to to share data structures between uh, like Java programs and and Python programs, or you know other. It basically lets you. It's it's like a data sharing format or serialization format, something like that. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about how that's integral to your system? Yeah. So the the primary person behind Arrow is uh, Wes McKinney right now. And actually, many years ago, when I was at Trifacta working on Trifacta's data system, we were actually collaborating on uh, working on Arrow. And Arrow is kind of based on this this concept of essentially creating like a standardized in-memory format, right? There are a whole bunch of different memory, whole bunch of formats for keeping data on disk, like things like Parquet or Orc or whatever. But the goal of Arrow was to create an in-memory format that would be efficient for compute, right? And it's a row batched columnar format, which it is it's a very efficient thing for, for modern CPU architectures to use. And in addition, uh, you know, it enables some of the interoperability that, that you mentioned, right? Because it is a standardized memory format, you can say like to another program, hey, this data is located in memory over here, go work on it, produce some results, write it over here, and then I can access it in the same format. So Arrow ultimately solves like two, two problems, right? So one of them is just like a specification for how data is in memory. And then the other one is the standardization of that format so that you can share it across different languages. So we use both aspects of Arrow, right? So when we built up Pixie's data system, we wanted to build it on open standards. So we use Arrow to, to you know, build an efficient data system. And the second part of it is we use Arrow to exchange data with other things. For example, in Pixie, we use TensorFlow, and we use Arrow to exchange data with TensorFlow so that we don't have to have TensorFlow you know, worry about reading some like specialized internal format. Right. Actually, on a, on a broader point on Arrow, like we see a lot of customers who have who are familiar with Wes and Pandas and and Arrow actually become Pixie customers. And on the other side, there are projects around Arrow, like like Rapids and Blazing SQL, which are actually much wider spread out than Zen. And I thought it were like large kind of banks and enterprises and stuff uh, are increasingly uh, looking at Arrow. And then Rapids is essentially a way to like uh, deploy that on GPUs specifically to run kind of analytics pipelines. Well, as we begin to wind down, you can talk a little bit about the acquisition. So you guys got acquired by New Relic. What are the the dynamics of an acquisition like that? And, and what kind of synergies do you see between the two companies? Yeah, I can take a quick pass at that. And Sean, please add details to this. So we were getting ready for Pixie's launch, uh, actually. And we started having some very early conversations in particular, we got a chance to, to meet with, with Lou and we kind of have this like shared vision to make make all these like monitoring and debugging tools easy and accessible to all developers, right? So that we were kind of driven by this shared goal and effectively that led to us, you know, deciding to, to join forces with New Relic on trying to effectively create Pixie as a platform uh, that'll be open and available to, to all developers to use. 
Right. Like, and, and as we kind of, as we open sourced all of Pixie this year, like we definitely get asked a lot from the community, but like why open source now? And like, what was the journey? To be very, to be very honest, when Zen and I started Pixie, we weren't super opinionated and open source versus SaaS. We were just trying to build the, this, we thought this magical platform, which helps get you the data that you need without doing much work. And kind of we followed the norm of, we were on the path to build kind of an end-to-end kind of a product or a SaaS product um, similar to a new relic or Datadog, but do it with the community. So we had our Pixinar community and we had this basically a free forever product. And we were on that journey. And it, around that time frame, as as Ann mentioned, like what we, we weren't very familiar with it, but like as we spent time with like Lou and Bill, with Staples, their chief product officer and president and, and their their team, we got to know like their view of, of essentially standardizing on open telemetry and open sourcing all software which collects and processes data in the customer's environment. So that shared vision, plus this kind of idea of making Pixie ubiquitous kind of got us pretty excited and then from a technical standpoint we felt like okay like this allows us an opportunity to open source all of pixie kind of keep building out the project to a point where any developer can use it similar to prometheus or kubernetes itself so that was uh that was a big kind of exciting point and now that we've we've joined forces they've been super awesome so like the entire kind of pixie engineering team and this fast growing uh, kind of completely works on the pixie open source project and we start the process of donating it, contributing it to the CNCF. So hopefully, like the Pixie Nut community and the project kind of catches on and just keeps growing. So it's pretty good. And your point about like how it ties into like New Relic side. So what's happening with the broader observability space is that the industry is kind of standardizing on open standards, whether that's open telemetry for the ingest ingest spec, and then all the agents. So New Relic was already they open source all of their agents. The kind of the Ruby, Java, all of that stuff over the last kind of eight, 10 years of R&D. So they were on that journey. So it kind of aligns really well. So our goal is to kind of expand how broadly kind of Pixies use. And if a customer wants to build their own L stack, they can do that. If they want to use kind of kind of SaaS stacks, they could do, do that as well. So there's kind of a good, good kind of engineering alignment. Awesome. Well, anything else you guys want to add or should we wrap up? Oh, that was good. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having us here. Yeah, thanks, Jeffrey. Awesome, guys. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show.